When I was in high school, our teachers would write our assignments on the right hand of the whiteboard. Now, if you're about my age, you're used to this. If you're thinking, what is a whiteboard? Well, that means that you're way younger than me. And if you're thinking a whiteboard, that sounds like modern technology. Well, that means you're probably a little bit older than me. But that's what would happen. I'd walk into high school and the teacher would write down all the assignments on the right hand of the board. So every Monday morning, I would walk in, I would sit down in my class, pull out my assignment notebook, and I would just jot down all the assignments for that specific class from that specific teacher. And, and normally it would look something like this. You probably remember it would say something like, read pages 120 to 151. There's going to be a quiz on Tuesday. And that paper, that pesky paper is due on Friday. You know, normal homework assignments that we were all accustomed to while we went to school. But about once a year, a teacher, sometimes more than one teacher, would put something on the whiteboard that I always hated. All it said was in big, bold, capital letters, group, project. Now, depending on who you are or who you were in the group, you have a different sense of if you liked these things or not. And really, it not only depended on who you were, it really depended on who was in your group with you, whether you loved this type of project or hated it. Because not only was your enjoyment dictated by who was in that group, but likely your grade was also dictated by who was in that group. Because if your group was a, a whole bunch of A students, well, the natural result would probably be an A. If your group was made up of all C students, your natural result would probably be a C. And if you're a teacher in the room, you know that you don't set up groups like this because it's far too predictable. And that's why you do something completely different. You see, what you probably do as teachers what I experienced, and if you went to school, what you probably experienced, is that teachers would take for these group projects, they would mix the groups up, and you would have an overachiever, you would have an underachiever, and you'd have some people somewhere in the middle. But the problem, of course, is even those results are incredibly predictable. Because the A student who has the 4.0, who is determined to get the scholarship and, and win Victorian, well, they are not going to let anyone else decide their future by collaborating and having conversation, handing out tasks, right? They're going to just own it and take it. And so what happens is in the end is the group project gets an A and everyone's happy because they get an A and some of the people get the whole weekend off is how that kind of works. Now, obviously, this cannot be the intent of our teachers, right? Because after all, they already know what the A student is capable of. And so their master plan cannot be, let's figure out unique ways for the A student to do more homework on the weekend. So what is their reasoning? What is their goal? Well, I believe, and the teachers in the room would probably agree, I believe that the reason the teachers do this is because they have these dreams of these unlikely partnerships forming and learning to collaborate on these group projects, resulting in everyone overachieving because they all use their strengths for the betterment of the team. But I would say this is rarely the result, even though I think the philosophy is, is great. So why doesn't it work? Well, today we're actually going to look in the book of Ephesians and see the answer to that question. It's an answer that teachers should have known all along. Maybe they do. Our students in the room will hate, but everyone will learn something this morning, especially when it comes to our faith. And so here's where Paul takes us right away in his letter. 
He says, we must no longer be children. Now, as we re-engage with the book of Ephesians today, we are going to experience a shift. If you were here last week, you remember the sermon was inspirational. Because after all, because of Christ, we can reach these, these unbelievable heights and be unified as we love God and love others and, and walk in Christ's footsteps. But as Paul moves into this section, we experience an abrupt shift. In fact, it's almost like he just stops what he was talking about and, and goes in a completely different direction. Because instead of the, you can do it, buddy, right? Just keep moving in the, in the right direction with this gentle nudge into the future. He basically says, stop being a baby. Now, to Paul's credit, he does soften the blow a little bit by including himself in the conversation. He uses this word, we, because he's humble enough to know that even the best of us, the best of the followers of Christ Jesus can still fall into this trap. So to understand what Paul is talking about here, we have to ask ourselves, what do we know about children? Well, we know, first of all, that they don't have much self-control. We know that they throw tantrums and scream and cry and pout when they don't get their way. We know they blame others when things go wrong. It's always the teacher's fault, it's the coach's politics, or it's the friend's influence. We know they lie to stay out of trouble. We know they call each other names. We know they are impulsive. We know that often they need to be the center of attention. We know they bully those who aren't as strong as them. We know they think the rules apply to everyone else but themselves. We know that they rarely learn from their mistakes. And right now you're thinking, forget children. Right? I know grown-ups like this because I work with that guy. Maybe I'm married to that guy. Right? We, we have people, and we get caught up in this childish behavior, which is exactly Paul's point. These childish behaviors are not fit for an adult, and these types of behaviors are definitely not fit for a follower of Christ. So this is where Paul goes from this thought. Those who are childish will be tossed to and fro and blown about by every wind of doctrine. You see, what else is something that we know about children? We know that they easily get distracted, don't they? And Christians, even grown-up Christians, can easily fall into this trap as well. Because whatever is new or hip is exciting, and it will quickly draw our attention. But here's the thing, when it comes to our Christian faith, it's not new, and we're told in scripture, it's not gonna be hip. Instead, our faith is timeless, it's ancient, it's eternal, which is exciting, because it means that it will always be relevant no matter what year it is. That's why each week here at New Life, we work through these eternal, eternally relevant words of scripture, piece by piece by piece by piece. And that's why each week, we also recite these ancient creeds, whether it's the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed like today. These ancient creeds that we use from week to week, they actually bulletproof us from what Paul is concerned about happening to us here. And that's why we recite them after the sermon. Because if, if someone came up here and they were trying to get you all excited about a new belief about God, their words would run right in the face of the creeds which happen right after this. And hopefully when they hit the creed, they would just crumble right in front of you. Now, I haven't seen this here, right? I haven't seen this happen at New Life, but I know this happens in churches around our nation. 
because I've seen it on TV, I, I've read it in books, where people take new and exciting doctrines and they, and they put them into the Christian thought process. Doctrines that somehow they have discovered, even though no one else discovered them after 2,000 years of church history. Things that the apostles couldn't even find in the Bible, somehow these people have found new ways, special things tucked into scripture that no one else managed to see before. And as Christians, when we hear these things, when we see these things, when we're told these things, it should cause us to pause and look around because we aren't children. We shouldn't get easily distracted. So Paul continues and tells us what also we shouldn't get distracted by. This is what he says. He says, we shouldn't be distracted by people's trickery, by their craftiness and deceitful scheming. You see, not only can we get distracted and get off course because of people wanting to preach to us the latest and greatest, but there are actually people out there who are intentionally trying to deceive us. Now, that previous group, I believe it's, it's filled with people, probably with the best of intentions, but this group that Paul's talking about now, this is completely different. This is a group filled with people who are not unintentionally leading us off course, but they are intentionally doing this. Now, why would someone do this? Well, I believe it normally comes down to one of these next three things, or maybe a combination of these next three things, which is power, money, or fame. They want to deceive you, because if they deceive you, they are in control of you, and this gives them power. And normally this sounds like something like this. If you behave this way, then God will bless you. Now, of course, this behavior that they're asking of you always seems to bless them more than it blesses God. Now, here's the second one. They want to deceive you because if they deceive you, well, then they are in control of your money. And normally this sounds something like this. If you send off X amount of dollars, then God will bless you, or God will actually provide you more money than you sent him. Once again, it benefits the teacher more than God's mission. The third one is this, they want to deceive you because if they deceive you, well, then they are in control of your attention. And if you pay attention to them, then your friend will pay attention to them, your wife will pay attention to them, and the list goes on. Instead of placing your attention on Jesus, you place your attention on them. So these are the types of things that childish Christians can easily fall victim to. But what should we expect from Mature Christians, well, Paul tells us. This is what he says. But mature Christians will speak the truth in love. So how do we avoid these traps? How do we act like grown-up Christians? Well, Paul says we, we speak the truth in love. Now, as Paul writes this little statement here, it's amazing how powerful these six words are. So I want to kind of pull it apart a little bit for us this morning. The first word I want to take a look at is this word truth. Now, in the book of Romans, we learn the power of truth. We are told that we'll be transformed by the renewing of our minds when we experience God's truth. So if we have the truth, if we share the truth, if we hear the truth, we will have the opportunity to experience the transformation that only Christ can offer. Now, as we dig into this a little bit deeper, we also find this other very important word. We see this word love, which Jesus tells is the encapsulation of the law, love God and love others. But here's where these two ideas 
collide and they must coexist because love requires truth and truth requires love. Now, if you don't hear anything else today, I want you to hear that again, okay? Because this is the major piece that I want you to hold on to. Love requires truth and truth requires love and they must absolutely coexist but you probably know this already because i think you're a pretty pretty bright group and you've experienced some of life and you probably remember that there was a time when you spoke truth to somebody but they knew or they sensed that you did not love them and what was the outcome it just created problems didn't it or how about the time that you, you love them too much to tell them the truth, even though that's exactly what they needed? The same result. It just created problems. You see, these two ways do not work. If you want someone to experience the transformation that only Christ can offer, you must love them and you must tell them the truth. These will not function independently. It's not that they are better together, it's that they only work together. Now you might be thinking, but Ben, I mean, they need to hear the truth, right? I need to tell them the truth. And you know what? I'm, I'm sure they do. I'm sure they've got a lot of blind spots. I'm sure they've got a lot of struggles. I'm, I'm sure they need to hear the truth. But do you love them? Do you love them? Now, you might also be thinking this. But Ben, I, I love them. Good. Because if you love them, you will give them the truth. In fact, they will expect you to give them the truth or it will demonstrate that you actually do not love them. You see, we need both truth and love together. So if we can do this, if we can put truth and love together what will the result be? Well, Paul tells us. He says these, these words. We must grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. You see, the result of putting love and truth together and living that out is that we will experience growth. That's what we can expect. We can expect growth. We will experience transformation as we become more like Christ. Because when we know that people love us, we are open to what they have to say to us. And when they hand us truth, it can actually then penetrate our minds and our hearts and affect every area of our lives, which sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Right? We all want to be on, on the right path. So how is this best experience for believers? Right? What does this look like? What is, what is the space when this, where this best happens? Well, Paul tells us. He goes on to say, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by every ligament. The answer to where does this transformation best happen, where is truth and love best take place for Christians? Well, the answer is that it's in the body. Now, Paul isn't talking about the physical body here. Of course, he's talking about the body of Christ, the church, the gathering of God's people. And to describe the church, Paul uses this rich imagery of a ligament, the part of the body that holds everything together. Remove a ligament, and the body crumples to the ground. And we've all seen this in an NFL game before, right? Someone tears a ligament, and down they go, writhing in pain. 
But if we removed all the ligaments, the body would just completely fall to pieces. The idea that Paul is conveying here is very simple. We need each other. We are better together. If we aren't together, we will likely fall completely apart. In fact, it's more than that. Look how Paul closes this section. He says, with which it is equipped as each part is working properly, promotes the body's growth in building itself up in love. You see, it's more than just the fear of falling apart. It's the reality of never reaching our potential. The church is meant to be a place where everyone is seen as valuable because they all have value to add. And when we cultivate an environment like this, right, when we can do this, what will the result be? Well, Paul said it twice already. It's growth. Through love and truth, we grow as individuals. We grow as a community, and we will grow God's family. So, back to where we started. How do we make the teacher-assigned group project effective? How do we create a project where the F student contributes, the C student contributes, and the A students rely on the full group and the gifts of others that everyone has, is tucked into their DNA as a gift from God? The answer is that you create a project that is so much larger than any one person could accomplish by themselves. You create a mission that is far too reaching for one person to accomplish by themselves. A mission of transformation. And not just the transformation of an individual, but the transformation of a whole community with a view of the transformation of the entire world. Which is impossible, right? After all, this is too great of a goal and expectation. And if you are thinking this right now, you would be absolutely correct. It is impossible. It is too big for one person. But we aren't just one person, are we? We are a community of believers who God has handcrafted with potential and skills that work together for such a time as this. Plus, we are a family of faith that's filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, which means we are never alone and we are never limited. But if we want to get an A on this group project, we must be a family of faith that is willing to share both truth and love. Because this transformation that we all are hoping for our community and our world, it's not going to happen out there unless we get this right. The transformation is not going to happen out there until it happens in here with truth and love. The transformation is not going to happen out there that we all hope and expect and we'd love to see happen in our community, in our world, unless it starts right here with truth and love.